Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, actress Ruth Negger on her new movie, Passing, as well as her upcoming role in Macbeth opposite Daniel Craig on Broadway and her never-ending love of love-hate. We herald the return of Wes Anderson with the release of his new movie, The French Dispatch, and we look at the latest version of the sci-fi epic, Dune. Plus, comedian Emma Doran on her favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well and you're getting ready to enjoy a little downtime for the bank holiday weekend. If, of course, downtime is afforded to you. Not everyone gets a day off on the bank holiday. But I hope you're well regardless. Now in TV, I guess this was the big event of the week. The revolution will be televised. He's our dad, but he was going to send me to jail. He'd do the same to all of us. Chef, are you okay? Are you part of this family or not? If I back you against dad... You would need to let me take over. Tom? Ask yourself, do you want to be on the side of good or evil? Yes, Succession Season 3 has returned. Now, you know, if you're a fan of Succession, you don't really need me to tell you anything about it. If you've never watched it, you really should because it is Shakespearean. There I said it in its dramatic punch. It really is. It's about this media family. Uh, you know, some people say it's rumored to be loosely based on Mur- the Murdochs. Who knows? That's really of no consequence because it's about this family headed by Logan Roy, who has these children who want to be part of his business and possibly take it over. Logan Roy is played by the wonderful Brian Cox, the actor, as opposed to the professor of physics who used to be in D-Ream, the other Brian Cox. And season two ended, oh, I guess it's nearly two years ago at this stage. And season three began this week on Sky Atlantic. And for fans, you know, season two ended on a really high pitch and you weren't sure how season three would begin. And season three has begun equally as high-pitched, if not more so, in very dramatic fashion with the Roy family falling apart and his young son, Kendall, basically making a play to take over the company. Now, people are bemoaning the fact that it's dropping once a week and they've just watched one episode, which, as I say, was on Monday night on Sky Atlantic. The nice people in Sky sent me screeners. So at the time of talking to you, I've watched the first three because I'm a really important person, so I get these things. But I can tell you that the dramatic pitch, the height of it, it continues. It is brilliant. Uh, season three so far, the first three episodes are absolutely fantastic. And I can't wait to watch a few more this weekend because they sent me seven. How lucky am I? But Succession is wonderful. If you haven't started it, if you're waiting to get around to it, begin it. Do yourself a favor. Cut. It is wonderfully acted. It's that phrase, dramedy. It really is. Sometimes it's hilariously funny. Other times it's like a death march of drama, the things that happen in it. But it is absolutely wonderful. Succession, season three. Now. Pardon me, I don't mean to stare, but I think I know you. Claire? Mm -hmm. 
I'm trying to find out the history of the blonde you've brought along. She's a girl from Chicago I used to know. Princess from Chicago. Things aren't always what they seem. I'll be damned. Lots of people pass all the time. It's easy for a Negro to pass for white. I'm not sure it'd be so simple for a white person to pass for color. So you haven't ever thought to? What? You ever thought of passing? No, why should I? Now I have everything I've ever wanted. This is my husband, John Bellew. Does he know? Now, that was a clip from Passing, a brand new movie that is landing in cinemas, in select cinemas from next Friday, the 29th of October, and then is going to be released on Netflix on the 10th of November. It's adapted from a celebrated novel from 1929 of the same name by Nella Larson, and it tells the story of two black women, Irene Redfield, played by Tessa Thompson, and Claire Kendry, played by Academy Award nominee Ruth Negga, who can pass as white but choose to live on opposite sides of the colour line during the height of kind of the Harlem Renaissance in late 1920s New York. This, I suppose you would call a phenomenon where black people would sometimes pretend to be white or at least pass as white because of the way they looked. They were able to, for want of a better phrase, get away with looking like they were white people, which people at times felt they were forced to do uh, to get a better shot at life. Now, these two women are childhood friends and haven't seen each other in a long time. And then one summer afternoon, they reunite by chance. Irene reluctantly allows Claire, that's Ruth Negga's character, into her home, where Claire kind of ingratiates herself into Irene's husband's affection and her family and, and soon her kind of whole social circle. As their lives become more deeply entwined, Irene finds her one steady existence upended by Claire. And passing becomes this kind of examination of obsession, repression, and the lies people tell themselves in order to protect their, I suppose, carefully constructed identities. It's directed by Rebecca Hall, the actress. It's her directorial debut. And as I say, Ruth Negga plays Claire. And Ruth Negga is, you know, an interstellar talent now. She was nominated for an Academy Award for Loving. And we know her, of course, from Love, Hate and all sorts of other things. And I got to talk to her about passing and a lot more besides in person recently. Ruth, lovely to meet you. And the film is fantastic. You know, race is a very complicated thing. Mm. Or, you know, maybe it isn't, but humans make it very Mm. complicated. And, you know, you were in Loving before, Mm. which was, you know, a lot of stuff going on in that movie. Mm. There's even more stuff going on in this movie. The idea that someone would pretend to get through life by being a different colour. Had you any reservations about you know, getting into something that's so, I guess, of now and you're going to be asked so many questions about it by people like me or did you just want to do it with all guns blazing? Well, that's interesting because I don't think people who passed pretended to be a different colour. I think what it was was that uh, if you're able to pass, Mm -hmm. you were perceived you could be perceived as white okay and i think i think that people were able to exploit that situation for whatever reasons okay but um so it's about perception really yeah um and actually the fact that you know um a black person could leave their community and then uh be assimilated into the white community um 
is about perception, really. They're not yeah. changing anything about themselves yeah. at all, really. Yeah. They're just That's maybe keeping tight-lipped about what was written on their birth cert, yeah. you know. Because um, I think it actually, the whole idea of passing and the... There's so much, it's so loaded, you know, mm. this whole idea of the one-drop rule. Yeah. You know, if you have one drop of a Negro blood, then you're a Negro. Yeah. Even if you might be white presenting, but then you come from a black culture and a black yeah. community. So basically the idea, race is a, a construct. I think films like Passing sort of reveal um, the cruel absurdity of yeah. it all, really. Yeah, okay, that's very interesting. So your character, Claire, do you, you know, it's, do you, because you're saying it's all about perception, do you sympathise? Do you, do you have any reservations about what she did? Or do you think it's just all a question of perception and her I heart was entirely in the right place? I don't think it's about hearts being anywhere. I think it's about what's available to you as a human to be able to reach your potential. Um, I think I have a huge amount of compassion for people who passed and I don't have I don't have any judgment on them. Mm. Because, you know, people pass for various reasons, but usually it was for access, access to higher education, yeah. access to a better job, to health and benefits. All of these things were denied black people. Mm -hmm. And if you could be seen to pass as white, then it wasn't a rejection of your community per se. It was um, sort of using the system to beat the system. Right, okay. And I, for me, I just, I'm full of admiration for that. Okay. What I feel compassionate about is the fact that um, <sighs> so many of people had to forced to lie and the severance from families. You know, a lot of people had to leave their communities behind mm -hmm. in order to keep the lie um, going, which is not a lie, really. It's just not... <laughs> not sharing the truth about your origins, but mm -hmm. kind of... But when you think about that, why should you? Why should anybody? Yeah. Yeah. In order to really... Um, be free to live the life they wish. Um, I think it's a cruelty that people felt that they had to do that in order to achieve an equal play, 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 playing ground. Um, so no, I have huge compassion and admiration for many people who felt they had to pass. Um, and, you know, you hear so many stories about, you know, the families also being complicit in yeah. this and having to sort of sever contact with their loved ones and yeah. how hard that is. And people felt they couldn't return to their communities even mm -hmm. because they were so worried about this sort of, their new life being dismantled by being snitched on. Yeah. You know, and when you think about the ridiculous of that, you think this idea of race is sort of ridiculous. And it would be laughable if there wasn't so much violence as a fallout from yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. If there wasn't such a bitter legacy from it all. Absolutely, yeah. You know, for something that's about something so serious, it, it's a beautiful looking movie. And mm -hmm. it's shot in black and white for, well, I was going to say obvious reasons, but maybe not obvious reasons. But the killer scene, the, the scene I love in it is where you see Irene for the first time. And there's this look between the two of you and you really don't know 
what's going on. If it's, I don't want to spoil it, but it's just, it's a profound scene and it's, you know, it, it was spine tingling in a way. Mm. Is there anything you can tell me about that scene? Did you see that as an important part of the movie? Did you just have to work that up? Because you, I know it's acting, you know, that's what you do. But you, you know, uh, try acting as Laurence Olivier said, but you, it was brilliant that scene. Was there a lot of time yeah. spent on that? We didn't actually have that much time. You know, it was a very low budget film. Mm. Um, not a lot of money and time was tight. Okay. Um, but we, you know, we had a lot of discussion beforehand. So that was our rehearsal period. Um, but no, it's very, it was very important. The tension that is very apparent in the novella, Rebecca was um, adamant that that would be teased out in the right. film yeah. because it's so important because there are a lot of people who passed because at this point in, the, in the, the film, Irene is essentially passing. She's mm. in a, a whites-only yeah. hotel. And so there is, you do as an audience feel the uncomfortable nervousness of, yeah. is someone going to find her out? Is this woman staring at her because she knows? Mm. Um, and so that kind of tension is is sort of maintained throughout mm. the film. It is a thriller in a way. Yeah, it's absolutely. Got many yeah. thriller elements. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of film noir elements yeah. to it. But I think it was important in terms of, you know, having to live your life in terror of being found out, found out to be what? Yourself? Yeah. I mean, the psychological impact of that is immense and we don't really know entirely what the fallout from that was because the nature of passing is so secretive. Yeah. Um, so we don't have access to all the stories. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's um, a testament to Rebecca's filmmaking her skill as a director, that that was definitely um, something that we was very important for us to, to maintain. Um, and, you know, to live with that burden of being found out, const you know, constantly going through life thinking. You know, a lot of people didn't even tell their, their new families. Right. Um, and we touch on it in the film, you know, uh, when there were children involved, uh, you know, Claire says she's so nervous. She says, I was so nervous that she would come out dark. I know. It, it's kind of a punch in the moment. It's a punch in stomach the gut. In, or punch in the, punch in the, punch in the stomach moment in the movie. Mm. I was watching with my wife and she had this audible admission of air. Like, it's, it's awful, but brilliantly uh, evoked in the movie. And, you know, Harlem, like, mm. I grew up in Dublin in the 80s. Harlem we saw it as this, it was a ghetto. That's what we were told. And in a way, that's where, you know, black people were all put. It was terrible stuff. We had this vision of Harlem as this ghetto. Mm. And yet Harlem looks gorgeous in it. Now, I know that's not the full story. And Irene's character is probably more well to do. But it's a it's a different evocation of Harlem than I've ever seen before, mm. certainly in that period, which well, I thought looked wonderful. Yeah, well, that was important to us as well, to, you mm. know, um, portray the vibrancy of that era, yes. the community of that era, the joy, you know, mm -hmm. because you know the one of the most beautiful things in this film is the is you really get the sense and see uh, black joy, yeah. you know, amongst you know within this time frame when you know 19 i think it was 1919 was the it was called the red summer because the amount of lynchings that happened okay. um we're at the height of lynchings in this this mm. time and it's the great we're in, the, we're in the middle of the great migration when a lot of um black people left the south because of racialized mm. violence and moved to you know this this um mecca of yeah. the north city of hope it, it's, absolutely and um of course a lot of places were 
ghettoized. And I think it's important to show the vibrancy and the beauty of these communities yeah. and not just the pain, because I think what's extraordinary about people who are marginalized and who suffer is their determination to find joy, yeah. you know? And I think that's very important um, to bring out and see more. And that, you know, our film isn't, there's no white gaze here. It's not through a, a lens of a white gaze here. No. This is very much the um, effect of passing within the black community. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Tell me this, just away from the movie, uh, your career has become interstellar, you know, and you live in Los Angeles and you're, you're one of those people that we go, she's made it, you know. Do you, do you get home much, and especially no. with lockdown? No? No. I spent lockdown um, in LA. Right. So I feel like a a Los Angelino now. <laughs> Los Angelino. Los Angeles through the lockdown. You know, there were worse places to be. No, sure, yeah. Um, but I did, you know, I mean, I'm used to sort of not seeing my family for long periods, but to sort of to have sort of an enforced separation was quite heartbreaking. And um, But I did manage to dash home last month to, okay. I did a whirlwind. So were London, Limerick, Kerry, Galway. Okay, so I was going to say, were you zooming home to Limerick like the rest of us? all during the pandemic. Yeah, I think it started off like loads of family quizzes and then everyone just got tired of the family, family quizzes. <laughs> We're all done with family done. quizzes. Let's never done. do another family quiz. <laughs> well, I brought a quiz with me, but no, I'm <laughs> uh, Well, I'm glad you're home today. Yeah. Tell me this. Uh, I can't help but read about you're going to be on Broadway with an up-and-coming actor, <laughs> Daniel Craig. I think his future's good, you know, if he, can, if he can just keep it together. But <laughs> drama, you know, people read that and it's, wow, Ruth Negga on stage with Dan Craig, but you've been in theatre as long as you've been in TV and movies, right? It's always yeah. been a big part of what you oh, do. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how I started off. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I'm not sure what training's like today, but like, you know, I think our, our training was f essentially for the stage. I think mm. we had like one week of camera work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and was this in the Gaiety mm, School of Acting? No, this no. was at Trinity oh, yeah. College. Yeah, right. yeah, the Dublin. other place. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I, 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 you know, I, I love the stage, and that's where I saw myself. But I also definitely wanted to do film and TV because TV and film are my first love. Mm. So you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with screen. So, um, but you know, what's really lovely is to be able to sort of play in all those platforms. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really lucky like that, you know. Yeah. No, absolutely. But the talent has something to do with it as well. Let's not forget. And are you excited about Broadway with Daniel Craig, yeah, Macbeth? Yeah. yeah, of course. 2022, yeah. there'll be full yeah. audiences, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. I mean, it'll be, it's going to be beautiful, I think, if, yeah. if it all, you know, if we all go back to the theatre, I mean, it's really people's lives have been devastated by they it, have. you know, um, both over there and over here. So I'm thrilled that... You know, and there's a need and a de and an energy for the theatre. People are thrilled to be able to go back, yeah. and hopefully we can work it out. But yeah, I mean, the terror hasn't descended yet. So I'm <laughs> I'm enjoying the kind of the the yeah. blissful ignorance. Yeah, moment. well, it's March, so the terror will hit probably just after Christmas. Yeah, but that'll be ideal. You'll be having Perfect. the January blues. Anyway. Right. Listen, finally, then I was talking to Angeline ball yesterday oh wow and oh, we're having a lovely chat and then of course i brought up the commitments and there was an audible huh. but she spoke about it she was lovely and i guess maybe for irish people there is a certain thing with you about love hate yeah right, when it comes up but you see i think i've spoken to pretty much everyone involved in that from stewart 
to, to everyone. So, yeah. and I, I've never met you before. I, I just wonder, are you tired of talking about it? No. Good, mm -hmm. good. What's your sense of that show now? Are you really proud of it? Because it's it's often referred to as the greatest Irish TV show yeah. ever made and stuff. Yeah, but I get, I totally get that. I mean, it was thrilling. I mm. don't think anyone had seen anything like no. that before. And, you know, Stuart Carroll, what a writer. Absolutely amazing writer. Um, uh, I, I, I loved working on it. I loved the gang, loved the crew. Mm. It was thrilling to do. I haven't watched all of it now. Not even in lockdown? No, I, 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 will, I will go around to it, but yeah. it's very violent. It is, it is. But, I mean, you were in it. Surely you had a sense of the violence. I know. <laughs> um, I loved Rosie, and I loved that love between Rosie and Darren. I thought yeah. it was beautifully it was. done and super nuanced. And, I, 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 you know, it was so easy to play because, you know, Stuart avoids all the cliches, yeah, you know, they don't interest him and they don't interest me and they don't interest audiences, you know, so I don't know why people bother with them. Um, you know, so it was, it was just so easy. Mm. Um, and it was such a joyful experience. I Good. loved it. I'm super proud to be part of a small part, but a part of it. Well, sorry, you should be, and you should be very proud of, of passing. It was well, lovely to you. meet you and continued success. Thank you ever so much. Pleasure. Yes, Ruth Negger there talking to me about, well, her enduring love for love-hate and also taking to the stage with Daniel Craig next year and Macbeth on Broadway. And of course, passing her fascinating new film, which will be in select Irish cinemas next week, the 29th of October, and then will be released on Netflix on the 10th of November. Very cinematic looking movie, though beautiful rendering of kind of that period in New York. A great movie. Up next, we herald the return of Wes Anderson and also the return of Mark Ryle. Now you're listening to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new releases and there's a movie I'm very excited about because I've been waiting literally years for it and that's the new Wes Anderson movie, The French Dispatch. There's another Really interesting movie out this week that has a lot of expectation as well called Dune. Yes, Dune, I should say. D-U-N-E is back for another retelling. But the thing I'm most excited about, of course, is that I'm joined by our resident critic, Mark Ryle. Mark, good evening. Good afternoon. Hello. What a week, huh? What a week. What a week. And an, you and an I... embarrassment of riches. An embarrassment of, And you and I and your good lady wife were at the <laughs> cinema together. I should say that. What a yeah. wonderful experience. As the priest said at my wedding, Mark, you're punching above your weight. I Well, I know. But like, <laughs> let's just gloss over that. I don't want yes. to acknowledge that. No, exactly. Okay, listen. I say this a lot because there's certain movies you and I love, but we are both Wes Anderson devotees. So super I do, fans. Super fans, yeah. But I do want to be objective as well. So it's finally arrived. Wes Anderson, you know, he's a cultural force in a way. People have written books about him. People have written books about architecture that has been inspired by his movies, fashion lines, all that kind of thing. Some people hate him. Some people love him. So that's just a little preamble. The French Dispatch, what's going on in this? Uh, it is, I suppose it's a love letter to Paris. Um, but for, for me, I think it's also a love letter to journalism and or to that old school of journalism and to the dying medium of print, which, which Anderson is obviously besotted with. Mm. I, I doubt he owns a Kindle. You know? <laughs> no, I doubt he does. I wonder so, if he even has a phone. <laughs> I doubt it. Um, to, so the French Dispatch, or the, the French Dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun, to give it its full title, mm. it's about a fictional magazine that's heavily based on the New Yorker. 
Um, and in the French Dispatch, the under the watchful eye of Bill Murray's founder and editor in chief, um, it has been published for seventy-five. Oh, sorry, from fifty years from the fictional town of Ennui sur Blase, and it is now facing into its final issue. And the movie has this unusual structure in that it's set out like the magazine itself. So um, there's, it starts off with a small travelogue, and then there's three uh, feature pieces. You have. Uh, Tilda Swinton's retrospective of an artist working from prison, uh, Francis McDormand's piece on student protests back in the 1960s, and Jeffrey Wright's food column combined with a hostage crisis, and it's bookended by an obituary. And it is all quintessential Wes Anderson. Yeah, I mean, the stories are madcap. They're funny. They are at times very highbrow, but at other times very lowbrow. Like it's making references to John Luke Goddard, but other times, you know, there's just simple slapstick humor in it. You know, in a way to me, this film, and I don't see it as a criticism, but some people might, this is the most Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson movie I've seen ever. Yeah, it's it's immaculately designed chaos. Yeah. Um, and sorry, I should also say that, you know, it's it's short stories is, is the body of the film, three separate stories, as you say, mm. which other people might find disconcerting. I certainly didn't. No, I mean, in terms of, of form, I think the French Dispatch is probably most similar to the Grand Budapest, mm. um, kind of, because the Grand Budapest had a narrative within a narrative that was like a, a Russian nesting doll. And this one is, it's more episodic and, and self-contained. Those episodes, it would be self-contained. And the problem, I suppose, with an anthology is that it's it's only natural to compare some stories with more unfavorably to others. And, it's, and for me, I think the middle section with Timothy Chalamet didn't really work as well as the rest, but that's really just nitpicking, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you about that. And Timothy Chalamet is playing this kind of French revolutionary student. And Francis McDormand is brilliant in that as this kind of writer who's studying him and, and all that's going on in this French town. Uh, what did you think of it overall? Um, I think when you buy a ticket for a Wes Anderson movie, you're you're not paying to watch a movie. You're you're buying into you're buying an invitation into his intricately constructed universe. Mm. And I think he's often criticized for being a co-director, but I've always thought that there is emotion and, and pathos there if you care to look. Um, but if I did have one criticism of the French dispatch, it would be that it kind of lacks the emotional impact of his other work. Um, it's a bit more surface and no feeling um and those those all of those flourishes that we associate with anderson like the cutaway sets and the elaborate tracking shots and the mannered performances and the immaculately precise art direction and staging all of those flourishes have have kind of been amplified to the point now where they're not just flourishes they're 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 more of a constant Mm. and every shot in every scene has something going on and it's yeah. a bit like it's a, like a very rich cake with many many layers and it can get a bit overwhelming in one sitting but the thing about anderson is that it you can't just watch one of his films once it, you have to watch it repeatedly you know yeah i was actually thinking the same thing i actually can't wait to watch this again yeah. uh, the the royal tannenbaums to me is a high water mark of a movie that has style and a real emotional depth to it so i i agree with you it it probably doesn't have the killer emotion in it that that something like royal tannenbaums has or even rushmore to a certain extent and, and bottle rocket but to me in a way that's minor beans in this because i i kind of loved it and maybe it's just i've been waiting so long for it but i i really enjoyed it because maybe there wasn't an emotional punch but the ride was wonderful 
you can't i mean it's just there's so much going on that and you can't help but appreciate all of that attention to detail i mean i know a lot of people are 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 put off by that but those people are monsters. <laughs> We're not going to talk about them. Well, yeah, no, no. Some people just don't buy him, and that's fair I enough. Know, All views. He annoys some people, but you know they're wrong. He doesn't annoy you, and he doesn't annoy me. But Mark sure can say can. they're wrong. Dear listeners, I'm not saying you're wrong if you don't like Wes Anderson. If you don't, do let us know. John underscore Fardy. You can email us screen time at newstalk.com. Should also mention, you know, it's an unfortunate comparison, but back in the day when Woody Allen was in better favor with people, he mm. could like command whoever yeah. he wanted in his movies you get the feeling now the world is queuing up to be in his movies you're going oh there's edward norton there's Owen he, wilson of course he's in every movie oh there's adrian Bro-. like it just goes on and on and on yeah he's 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 generation x is woody allen yeah no he absolutely is okay what would you say stars wise i'm giving it a five. Oh, wow now, listen before you say anything <laughs> before you say anything not every child deserves a biscuit Right. And if I was handing out fives every week, <laughs> it would lose all meaning. Yeah. Okay. This is a five. Wow. Yeah. My, I, I was going to give it four and a half because I just don't think everyone's going to get it. And the egalitarian in me resists mm. from giving it a five. And it did lack a little emotional punch at times, but I'm going to give it a four and a half. Mark is giving it a whopping five that's the french dispatch let's give you a little flavor of that it began as a holiday eager to escape a bright future on the great plains arthur howitzer jr transformed the series of travelogue columns into the french dispatch a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics the arts high and low and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. A clip there from the French Dispatch with Mark gave an unusually high five and I gave four and a half. But we are both saying you should definitely watch this movie. It is delightful. Now, another really fascinating movie for different reasons this week is, I guess you would say, The Return of Dune, D-U-N-E. And this is based, of course, on the famous Frank Herbert novel from 1965. It was redone by David Lynch to pretty disastrous effect back in the mid 80s. We are now back with a very long redoing from Dallas, Dennis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Yeah, Denny. Denny. Sorry, Denny. Denny. Yes. Um, yeah. Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky also tried and failed to, to do it with Orson Welles and Salvador Dali. There's a really fascinating documentary about that. Um, yeah, oh, it's, I, it's, I never actually knew that. Wow. <laughs> there were documentaries worth watching. Yeah. So Dune, it's, it's often regarded as being unfilmable, which is a reputation that David Lynch's movie from 1984 did nothing to dispel. Um, I suppose it's hard to... Okay, so what is it? It's about... Um, well, can I interject there for one second? Fire away. And say I'm, two things. I'm really glad you're here because I can't give any spoilers for this, even if I wanted to, because I really don't know what it's about. I was quite lost a lot of the time. Okay, right. Well, I'll, I'll explain in a nutshell what it's about. Please it's about- do. It's the, it's about the most valuable substance in the universe, which is called spice. And spice is mined solely on the desert planet Arrakis. Mm. And 
stay with me. The emperor of the known universe has just given the stewardship of Arrakis and the responsibility for mining spice to the house of Atreides, yeah. who, who are the good guys. And then the, 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 the stewardship is a trap and that's been laid by the emperor and the planet's previous caretakers, the house of Harkonnen, who are the bad guys. And then you also have the matter of the planet's indigenous population, the, the Fremen, who are waging this ongoing guerrilla war against anyone, whoever is currently plundering the planet's natural resources. This is all covered in a handy TED talk at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I really didn't think it was that difficult to understand. The oh, political, okay. the political bit, bits of it weren't that difficult to understand, certainly not in relation to the, the David Lynch version. If, if okay. had the mo- so the it's, it, I'm just stupid. Is, is that, that's the takeaway? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, well, I no, think... That's very well described. And Timothy Chalamet plays the Again. heir to the this Lord. dukedom yeah. of our, our trades, right? He's going to become the ruler. Atreides, yeah, he's, yeah. He's Paul Atreides. Um, to start off with, I want to say I think Denis Villeneuve is a genius. And to, to go back to the Royal Tenenbaums, I don't use that word lightly. Um, I absolutely adore everything that he's done from from on Sundays to arrival, prisoners and enemy. And But he then he made Blade Runner 2049, which is... It's it's a, a stone cold masterpiece. Yeah, absolutely. And I th- I loved Arrival as well. Arrival is just tremendous. Yeah. But I think it, to, I, the best way of describing this would be if Blade Runner twenty forty nine was an a Kraftwerk album. I think Dune would be a double prog rock album. <laughs> maybe, maybe something by Yes. That that's missing the second uh, disc <laughs> with lots of instrumentals. Uh, huge, yeah, and a, and a, a wacky cover. Um, it is. It's a really beautiful movie, and it looks stunning. And it's it's a huge CGI sci-fi spectacle. But the CGI, I think, it's used in a very organic way. Um, quite often sci-fi can look a bit daft, but the, the visual effects and the production design really are faultless. And I bought into this completely. Um, on the other hand, I do think some of the dialogue and the terminology is a bit on the daft side. You have this odd mix of down to earth and complete gibberish. So. You have characters with names like Duncan and Paul, um, but they're talking about Bene Gesserits and, and Gamjabars. So it's a it's a weird mix. Yeah, I enjoyed it as a sci-fi spectacle. Like it was kind of like Lawrence Arabia in space. And and maybe I'm over-egging yeah. how little of it I understood. I, I mean, I was tired. I'd had a big meal, yada, yada, yada. But I mean, it held my attention the whole time. I, I, I did enjoy it. But... The criticisms I would make is it is quite, I did find it quite complex. Yeah. And secondly, it like 155 minutes. And then, and this isn't mm. a spoiler, at the start of the movie, it says part one. So yeah. there's three more hours of this to come. It is yeah. a long time to be on a desert in space. It is. Now, the thing that that would be my, the, my major problem with, with, with Dune, it, it's the fact that this is part one, which is something that the marketing campaign kept under wraps. And I don't think that that's entirely fair. I think mm-hmm. if you're a fan, you'll be well aware that it's part one, but it ends rather awkwardly and not in the cliffhanger, but it just kind of stops yeah. dead. And then there is no guarantee that part two will ever see the light of day. Um, I think the budget was something like 165 million. And if you double that and add half again for marketing, Dune is going to have to make over 400 million before making a profit. And that is a tall order. Yeah. And there's no one signed up to like uh, front the second one, apparently. At the moment, I don't know. I can't say it. I I read that in the Financial Times earlier in the week because that's the type of paper I read on a daily basis. It is to be decided. Yeah. Yeah. The the pacing is it's it's deathly slow 
yeah i think it's a good hour and a half before something exciting happens yeah and that, now, don't get me wrong when when something does happen it's spectacular oh yeah and this is this is sci-fi epic as i said yeah. yeah that was another thing it did take a long time i was 40 minutes in going this looks nice and it's intriguing yeah. but when's it all going to kick off yeah, yeah okay yeah. Uh, quit on route to stars though do you think this is one for a fan of the book who's dying to see it or do you think it stands by now i haven't read it but do you think i it's... haven't read the book like okay. the book was never a big thing when i was growing up either yeah. so i haven't read the book um and i enjoyed it there is an awful lot of world building going on yes a huge amount a huge amount you say these things so much better than i can that's what i wanted to say there's a load of word 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 building world building going on so what would you say stars wise um i'm gonna give it a four okay this is a really strange week i am shooting lower on both movies this rare i don't think this has ever happened before I've i'm going vitamins yeah clearly weed I'm, I'm also quite drunk <laughs> That helps. You're sunnier when you're drinking. I've always said it to you. Those breakfast meetings will have to continue. But listen, I'm going to give it a three just because there was too much world building. I found it very complex. I found it too long. I was very entertained, though. So I'm going to give it, a, you know, a solid three for Dune. Part one. Mark, you get a solid five every week. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Talk to you next week. Up next, comedian Emma Doran on her favorite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone about their favourite movie. Emma Doran is one of Ireland's most in-demand comedians, having toured all over Ireland, albeit before lockdown. However, she is fresh from her gigs at the Galway Comedy Festival. And we got off to a weird start in our correspondence when she thought I called her sugar in an email. More of that anon. Emma, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Very well. So listen... Your favourite movie, tell our listeners what you've gone for. I've gone for uh, Catch Me If You Can. Why? It was it, it was the one that I thought of straight away. So after I thought of Catch Me If You Can, I started to think of other movies. Uh, like Misery is a very strong contender. And then movies that I love because they're really bad, like Coyote Ugly. But I said, now I'll go with catch me if you can because that's that's what my gut was telling me um, to go with. why do you love that movie i think it's one of the few movies that i can watch again and again and um it, it's kind of got a bit of it makes me feel a little bit christmasy because there is a small christmas part in it but it's not overly christmasy and um I think just all the relationships and the acting and I think it's got a lot going for it as a movie. Just remind people roughly what it's about. Uh, Leo DiCaprio, Leonardo, not Leo, Leonardo. That's not like I know him. Terms. (laughs) Uh, He plays a, well, I I guess a con man of the highest calibre. He plays a con man, yeah. And um, I suppose what's endearing about his character is he starts uh, quite young and we find out lots about his kind of um, his, you know, his family life and his parents. And I suppose it's not so much for, you know, say money or things like that. It's, it seems more like he's doing a lot of stuff because he's kind of lonely and he's a bit lost. Mm. And um, he kind of builds this weird relationship with uh, Tom Hanks, who plays uh, the detective. Who's on his trail. Yeah, trying to track him down. And he follows him, I think, for a couple of years, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and then, 
Yeah, and then I the first time I watched, I didn't know until after that it was actually based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that it actually did happen. The guy helped uh, people de- develop uh, technology to counteract scam and counterfeiting and uh, stuff like that. He, he ended up working with the FBI and with loads of banks and stuff. And I think it's quite an American story. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have worked if it was set in, <laughs> it was set in Dublin. I think it would have been caught a lot quicker as well. <laughs> uh, and the soundtrack's pretty good as well. Just love it. Love it. But you see, Leonardo, for me, I used to be <laughs> a big Leonardo fan. So I loved like the beach. And now I never actually watched. Um, was he in someone with Gabriel Byrne? Was it the Musketeers or something? Yeah. I don't know. But they had a premiere in Dublin when I was about, I'd say, 15, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit. Out. No, yeah, I'd say about 14, 15. And sure, did I troop along in the hopes that Leonardo <laughs> would be there, me and a few of the mates. Um, and then as I kind of got older, I well, I realised I was obviously too old for Leonardo well, DiCaprio. Well, hang on a second, though. Did you, you did you wait outside at the premiere and try and spy him? Did you see him? Oh, he didn't turn up. Oh, okay. Gabriel <laughs> Byrne did come up and... Um, uh, there could have been a few others hanging around, you know, that kind of way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, went, stood, <laughs> stood outside at a premiere. I think it was on O'Connell Street. It wasn't very glamorous, I'll put it that way. Um, but I do, in fairness to I do remember Gabriel Byrne being quite nice to all the people waiting there. But, like, this is before social media, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think, like, UTV were there to <laughs> <laughs> to cover it so I have what I'm saying is basically me and Leonardo have a bit of history you go back a long way despite having never met him the the, the river's now, deep yeah, we, yeah no I mean we've never met parallel lives and all that yeah um but catch me if you can I think is I think it's a good watch do yeah. you like is I mean do you like it oh I do it's a great movie it's an absolutely yeah. great movie and it's great story yeah and I you, mean story is you know it, it was made for uh a movie. Yeah. Listen, you are back gigging. As I mentioned, you're at the Galway Comedy Festival. It must have been great to be back in front of a live audience. It was. And in and indoors mm. as well. Um was quite nice as well. It was quite a luxury because I'd done a few outdoor gigs. So like obviously in Ireland kind of are just, you know, at a certain point you kind of look up into the sky and you see a big cloud coming and yeah. you're like, oh, better wrap up this joke or whatever. <laughs> but um, no, it was brilliant. And uh, the audience were all uh, wearing masks and no, no, um, no alcohol or whatever, because it's, okay. it's a theatre. So I don't know, people in theatres aren't, they don't need crack or whatever. So they weren't... Um, <laughs> drinking but they were like uh great only i only kind of coughed after i was like oh yeah of course there was no bar or whatever so um yeah hopefully hopefully now it continues indeed and was was there a discernible difference like could you notice that the audience weren't drinking or or you said you just realized it afterwards like they didn't seem funnier or less funny or no no i didn't realize it after to be honest uh the few gigs i've kind of been doing since um covid the audiences have been super nice yeah you know kind of be like thanks so much for doing the gig 
was like, well, you know, just to be honest, I needed that more than you did, but, you know, thanks very much for having us. (laughs) People are just delighted to be back out watching live entertainment, you know. The wind is with you, as they say. Listen, I, you know, whenever you read about you, it's funny that they always describe you as a mother, you know, uh, and it's funny, like they don't describe, if I was a comedian, I'm a father of three, they wouldn't describe me as a father necessarily. And I know you, you were still very young when you started, but I mean, you had had, you had had another career, you'd gone off and got a sensible job. And then I think around the birth of your second kid or child, as my wife tells me to call them, uh, you <laughs> you decided that you were going to give this a go. Was it just that it had always been yes. at you and you thought, you know what, who cares if I have a three month old at home, I'm going to start this? You know, it's funny, I when I started, it wasn't really about, oh, that I had uh, kids or like, you know, because all of my adult life, I have been a mother. Yeah. So I actually don't know any different. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make any difference to me. So I've never like, do you know, I've never like had jobs without being a mother or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um. So, yes, it was. Sorry, don't answer your question. It was something that was um always niggling at me, but not... Not so much stand-up, I have to say. It was probably just like that it was more acting or performing. Mm-hmm. I didn't really I didn't really know anything about stand-up. Like I thought stand-up was like I mean, like for Americans in a way. As far right. as I was concerned, there was like kind of five Irish people that did it. And um they obviously knew somebody who knew somebody because I didn't know how you did it. And um in America they did stand up and it was you know, they performed in front of brick walls and it was really cutthroat. It was kind of like eight mile or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. It would be like, boo. <laughs> so I didn't actually know anything about it. I think I'd only, I think I'd only seen stand up on TV. And sure, mm-hmm. when you watch it on TV, I mean, it just doesn't capture what is going on in the room or whatever. But um, yes, yeah, somebody told me. A producer told me, oh, you should do stand-up. So I was like, okay. So it wasn't like, I have to, like, to be honest, it wasn't like as if stand-up was the thing that I wanted, I definitely wanted to do, but I definitely wanted to do something funny, I think, mm-hmm. was the vague, the vague idea. Yeah. Well, here you are making a living with that vague idea. So something worked out. I don't know. I'd put, I'd put living in inverse. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get into that right now. If people want yeah, yeah. to know more about you, they can find Emma, find you at emmadorancomedian.com. There's a really funny recent piece you did all about how you keep saying to people, it's mad, isn't it? All about COVID, which really made me howl with laughter. So I suggest people check that out. As I say, the website is emmadorancomedian.com for upcoming dates, upcoming videos, podcasts, all sorts of things. Her favourite movie is Catch Me If You Can. Thanks a lot, Emma. Thanks, Will. I spent four years trying to arrange your release. Had to convince my bosses at the FBI and the Attorney General of the United States you wouldn't run. Why'd you do it? You're just a kid. I'm not your kid. You said you were going to Chicago. My daughter can't see me this weekend. She's going skiing. You said she was four years old. You're lying. She was four when I left. Now she's 15. My wife's been remarried for 11 years. I see Grace every now and again. I don't understand. Sure you do. 
Sometimes it's easier living the lie. A clip there from Catch Me If You Can, the favourite movie of comedian Emma Doran. That's it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. You can get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Enjoy your bank holiday weekend and I'll talk to you all next week.